If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the 4th of our February 2012 editions. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine's on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com. We're on twitter.com slash historyextra and facebook.com slash historyextra. And coming up this week, we have... The big question I would ask about the empire would be, I think... What did this driving purpose uh, in the country do to us? Not so much at the time, but latterly. That was Jeremy Paxman on Britain's Empire. The couple were forced to go before the committee and apologise humbly for their action and their great uh, effrontery in brewing this pot of tea. Peter Thompson there on Revolutionary Attitudes in America. First interview then is with Jeremy Paxman, who is most famous as the anchor of BBC's Newsnight. He's also presenting another BBC series this month about the British Empire. Entitled Empire, it starts on 27 February and his book of the same name, Empire, was published by Penguin last year. In the February issue of the magazine, we have a major feature where we've asked a selection of leading imperial historians about the key questions that we ought to be considering on the story of Britain's empire. I caught up with Jeremy Paxman to garner his views on this matter. And the first question I asked him was, what is it about imperial history that interests him? I think that uh, for anyone of my uh, generation, in other words, anyone who grew up, grew to maturity during the 60s, 70s, maybe even into the 90s when Hong Kong was handed back, uh, there's been one narrative, and that is the end of empire and the belief that's followed that, that somehow you can just draw a line under the whole experience. Uh, that it was of itself a bad thing and that we have somehow outgrown it with the return of countries to independence. And the supposition that underlies that is that it has had no lasting impact upon us. And I think it has. I think it's, you can measure it in loads and loads of ways. OK. So, if I'm, so I put to you what is the big question that you would like to consider about imperial history. Would it be that how yes, it, how, how has it impacted yes, on I the think the, the The big question I would ask about the empire would be, I think, 
What did this driving purpose uh, in the country do to us? Not so much at the time, but latterly. What, what, what echoes still linger in us? And I think they reverberate really kind of quite profoundly. And if I ask you to identify a few things, what, what, yes, what would those echoes be? Well, I would say the fact, that we, the fact that we find ourselves living in a union is partly the consequence of empire. The Scots joined the Union after they virtually bankrupted themselves because they couldn't found their own empire. The continuing fact that we live in a monarchy is partly, I think, attributable to uh, empire. It was, it was a monarchical enterprise. And if you look at every single photograph uh, taken of Commonwealth heads of governments meeting uh, since the formation of that rather odd institution, the one constant is the presence of the Queen in the centre of the group photograph, mm. or family photograph, as they like to call it. I would say that it stays with us in the fact that you know, English is the international language and we're all therefore very lazy about learning other languages. I think it shows itself in, obviously it shows itself in um, things like the presence on the Security Council at the UN. It shows itself in the readiness of political leaders, whether they be Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair or David Cameron, to deploy British forces uh, abroad. I think it shows itself in the the engagement many people in this country feel with the rest of the world, and that's evidenced by the much, much higher rate of passport possession in this country than, for example, in a place like the United States by the engagement of British charities all over the developing world. And I think it shows itself you know, really, really profoundly in, in the fact that it has changed the genetic makeup of, of the people by, the, by immigration. Mm. So you know, I, I think on all those scores and many others, I think you know, a sense that we are somehow special and different, um, I'm not sure we are that really that special, We're certainly slightly different to many other countries, but every country is different to some degree. Um, the, the, the ongoing difficulties we have dealing with the rest of Europe, I mean, I'm sorry, I'll go, I, must, I'm, I mustn't ramble on, but I think there are loads and loads of uh, resonances that we find in the way that we live now that are directly attributable to the imperial experience. Mm-hmm. And when you were, I mean, you've written about the English before, did you find that coming through in, in your sort of analysis of the national psyche before? I mean, obviously, the empire is not well, just England, it's Britain, but yeah. did you find that coming through? Um, a little bit. It was certainly there in... It was certainly there when I was thinking about what being English meant, because it was defined partly in reference to other peoples. But, yeah, I think so. But I think that when... You know, when Cecil Rhodes made that astonishing claim to have been born English is to have won first prize in the lottery of life, all the the other racist comments that he made about um, we are the first race in the world and the more of the the world we control, the better it is for the world, Um, he is not really talking about Englishness. He's talking about Britishness. And Britishness is is an imperial identity, I think. I mean, Linda Colley's done some really interesting work on this, in which she also ties it to Protestantism and to monarchy, I think, if I recall correctly. Um, But, you know, Britishness is... John Fowles said that the the colours of Britain are red, white and blue, but the colour of England is green. I'm much more comfortable with the green, really. But we should have to, we have to accept 
we still have a red, white and blue flag and red, white and blue still runs through much of how we look at the rest of the world. Mm. Okay. You've, you've mentioned some of the, the more negative aspects of, of the British Empire just now. Um, and, and you've also talked in your book about how we don't link back to the mm. history of empire as much as we ought to do. But how are we going to get out? How, can, how are people, British people going to engage with the British Empire when there are so many negative aspects to it? But there are positive aspects too. Mm. I don't think. The people that we... The people who've been laughed at for 40 or 50 years now, the people who were the, you know, the district officers in the baggy khaki shorts and the pith helmets and so on, who were who figures of fun mm. for a very, very long time, matter of generations now, Actually, much of their work was rather laudable. You know, it was boring things like laying drains, putting in roads, opening pharmacies, seeing the schools were properly run. These are, these are worthwhile things. They are what, mere what makes societies function and are civilised. I don't see any reason to be embarrassed about any of that. Of course, you know, we were starting now. We certainly wouldn't go around invading other countries and conquering them. I mean, the central paradox being somehow you make people free by exerting your will over them. And I don't don't understand that. I really don't understand it. It's only explicable, it seems to me, in terms of a racial view of of, of politics and the world. But, um, you know, that... If if that is happening, and it was happening, it was happening virtually every European uh, country with a seaboard had an empire of sorts. Um, the British just happened to be more successful at it than most. Um, they all did it. I think it seems to me that if you're going to, if, if, if it was going to happen, it's better that there were people who had concerns other than pure rapacity. In the early days of empire, of course, they're all, you know, they're all Jack the Lad, get rich quick merchants, most of them. Well, not all, but many, yeah, most of them, I would say. Uh, and then it becomes, you know, codified, it becomes a kind of national project. And at that point, you do get a sense of ideology coming in. But up to that point, it's really, it's really uh, individual, wild entrepreneurs to dignify them, really. I mean, they're, they're, they're scoundrels, really, most of them. Mm. Um, but once you get a prevailing ideology, that, that ideology encompasses some sense of trying to better the circumstances of those am- among whom you find yourself, that seems to be good. Okay. I'm hesitant to put a trite question to you. No, you go ahead. You put it. <laughs> <But, I mean, laughs> is it something we should celebrate then? Is, is Empire, the British Empire something to celebrate? I would be uh, apprehensive about using the word celebrate because uh, <laughs> it seems to me that celebrate is to, is to, is to essentially what, to do what, what was done in high Victorian or Edwardian times, which is to kind of write a blank cheque for it. Um, Mm. One should celebrate positive aspects and, you know, not celebrate negative aspects, but a blanket celebration seems to me a difficult difficult thing to embark upon. Okay. Last question, just from reading the book and I assume from the TV series. Um, You've clearly trekked around the world looking at places associated with the Mm -hmm. empire. Is there anywhere where you can think that would be a good place to go to appreciate some particular aspect of Britain's empire? Oh, God, there are loads of places. Um, and people always cite Indian hill stations and the like. Uh, and there is something very... There is something very plangent about being in... I don't know, Simla or Utakamund or somewhere. And the old walls hung with... Uh, hung with imperial memorabilia and 
animal skulls of one kind, one kind or another. Um, but I don't think I'm not sure that's where I would where I would choose because actually I wouldn't choose any one place. I think because it's actually for me the fascination is in the detail. It's in the it's in the small places, the places where people live domestically, rather than the places where they blew trumpets. Um, so it's in you know it's in bungalows with overgrown gardens with English flowers run rampantly to seed. Um, bungalows in which they cooked you know terrible versions of english food it's that sort of it's that sort of connection for me <clears throat> that works but i mean other people would doubt take a different view that was jeremy paxman his bbc one series empire starts on the 27th of february and will be in five parts his book empire is published by penguin and you can read what our selection of historians consider to be the big questions of britain's empire in the february issue of bbc history magazine on sale now now we have a short advert want to enjoy great historic days out membership to historic royal palaces allows free and unlimited entry to the tower of london Hampton Court Palace, the Banqueting House, Kensington Palace and Kew Palace. With a transformed Kensington Palace reopening in March, the Diamond Jubilee and Olympic celebrations, 2012 promises to be the year to be a member. Prices start from just £43 a year, giving you unlimited entry to all five palaces and so much more. Visit hrp.org.uk or call 0844-482-7788 and become a member of our historic royal family. OK, our next interview is with Peter Thompson, who is Sydney L. Mayer University Lecturer in American History at Oxford University. One of his current research projects is to investigate whether attitudes to and an understanding of slavery influenced the thought processes of the early revolutionaries in America in the 1770s. I caught up with him in his office in Oxford to find out more. OK, so you've been working on the question of, of how far the concept of slavery sort of influenced the ideas of the American revolutionaries um, in the 1770s. So we need a bit of introduction here. So what, what's, what's the background here? What, what, what are we talking about? OK, um, the, the basic problem I'm looking at is a perennial one in American history, which is how could the uh, same founding fathers who uh, proposed in 1776 that all men are created equal have ignored slavery. And my sort of finding is that, in fact, a, a very sophisticated understanding of slavery informed the run-up to the Declaration of Independence. More specifically, in 1774, after the Boston Tea Party, various localities in America and then the first Continental Congress in October 1774 um, came up with an agreement which they called the Association, which would uh, was an agreement that no one would import, export, or have any intercourse with Great Britain until the uh, intolerable acts which had been passed by Britain uh, in response to the Boston Tea Party had been repealed. That document is incredibly illiberal in many ways and has always presented a puzzle to scholars of the American Revolution. In that, in order to force enforce the association, Congress agreed 
And Congress itself was an extra judicial body, which had no standing in British law or any kind of American law, that on its own sanction, it would create in every locality, in every town, county and village of America, a committee of observation, sometimes called a committee of public safety, whose duty it was to ensure that all inhabitants of the local area strictly adhered to the agreement not to import, export or have intercourse with Great Britain until the Intolerable Acts were repealed. This wasn't taken lightly if founding fathers thought that they themselves wouldn't in their locality be challenged. Thomas Jefferson, for example, imported some fancy sash windows for Monticello, his place of residence, after the association came into effect and tried to claim to his local committee that he thought the uh, agreement only applied to tea and was um, on the brink of being branded an enemy of American liberty. And this is what draws me into this. The wording of the association, by creating in every locality in America a committee whose duty it was to determine whether someone was or was not a patriot, according to principles of their own devising, with no prior uh, judicial um, authority or legitimation, created a situation which could very easily have led to a French Revolution-style um, social revolution in America. And so the question arises, why would Congress, a body which prided itself on being reasonable and, and comprised within it famous figures like John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, have come up with a document so illiberal, so fundamentalist, so uh, having such little regard to the laws of due process. And I think the answer to that question lies in the prior knowledge of the institution of slavery. The fact that, if you like, Americans knew what slavery was and that this conditioned the way they thought about the enemy within, in this case, an enemy who was white and who was lukewarm towards the cause of independence, if not outrightly hostile. In other words, an enemy who the Americans came to call Tories. All right. So, just taking it back one step. So, there was a possibility but that what Congress passed could have created, in essence, mob rule across the, the 13 states um, by allowing people, the, 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 the local councillors, if you will, to basically decide who they thought was not acting in the interests of the revolution, who was, who was on the side of the British, and then they could do whatever they wanted to them. Is that, is that basically the, the, the situation that we that, were getting the, into? Yes, that, that's the issue. Um, historians of America have often um, addressed the implications of this by saying, well, the entire American nation was seized by a sort of welling up of patriotic spirit, and so it didn't really present a problem to Americans at the time. On the other hand, historians of America have known for a long time that per capita, the, f 
the American Revolution produced five times as many self-exiles as did the French Revolution. That is to say that they were allowing for the different sizes of the population. There were five times as many white Americans who decided that they could not live in an independent America as there were Frenchmen who said that they could not live in a non-royalist France right. after 1789. But surely there's... The there isn't that much of a comparison between the French Revolution and the American Revolution in in the sense of, of the amount of violence that was visited on the people. And this is the other reason why this has been, um, as it were, shuffled towards the sidelines. It, it is true that um, the promulgation by First Continental Congress of the Association did not lead to the erection of a guillotine at every crossroads in America partly because the guillotine hadn't been invented. For the, um, and it is also true that uh, summary execution, um, uh, physical violence, um, mob action against people of suspect loyalties was comparatively rare. This is partly because a lot of people self-censored themselves or actually left America. But nonetheless, how is it, I ask in my research, that a, that a Congress which prided itself on being reasonable and would go on to write the Declaration of Independence saying that a decent respect to the opinions of mankind impels us to, to state the causes that are going to uh, lead to the separation with Britain, how could a self-consciously reasonable body of men have come up with such a hostage to fortune? And in thinking about this, I've, I've been trying to ask what threat did they think that non-insufficiently patriotic Americans posed to them? How should insufficiently patriotic Americans be treated? And the answers to these questions seem to me to revert back to a shared experience of slavery, to the fact that white Americans, especially genteel white Americans, knew what slavery was and that this filtered into their understanding of how to treat Tories. But not everyone in America was a slave owner or holder? No. Not everyone in America was a slave owner or holder, um, in, especially um, outside the South. But every white American knew, was familiar with the legal and cultural apparatus that justified slavery. slavery. There were slaves in the northern colonies, not as many as in the southern colonies, but they, they were there. Most white Americans would have seen a slave. If they hadn't actually clapped eyes on a slave, they were familiar with the arguments that justified slavery, that slavery was an inherited condition, that it was for life, that manumission from slavery rested in the owner's... Um, remit and not on, on the basis of any achievement of the slaves, um, that slaves were in, innately hostile to slave owners and, by implication, all white people. The basic sociology of slavery was familiar to all white Americans, even in areas where slave, slavery was not the dominant social force. So, okay, so if, if we take that as read that they were, sort of, they were all inculcated with, with an idea, a concept of slavery, and knew and understood what it meant, how does that then help us understand what they did 
in reference to the Tories, the, 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 the non-patriotic people in America? <clears throat> Here it might be useful to um, introduce some problematic evidence, some statements that are well known to historians but um, have been perhaps overlooked or, uh, or at least trigger my uh, interest. So, for example, George Washington, who of course was a slave owner, um, presided over uh, a meeting called the uh, the Fairfax Convention, which produced the Fairfax Resolves, which in turn became a kind of template for the First Continental Congress's um, Association of October 1774. And in an apparently sort of Freudian aside, um, Washington said, as at the moment that he had signed the deal, uh, he wrote to a man called Brian Fairfax that the crisis has arrived when we must assert our rights or submit to every imposition that can be heaped to honours till custom and rule shall make us tame and, and abject slaves such as the blacks we rule over with such arbitrary sway. Now, one could say that's a sort of unbidden thought, when the association was promulgated, an anonymous author, writing in a pamphlet entitled Political Observations Without Order, said that the tortures of Damien, this was the man who in 1754 had been pulled apart by four cart horses in Paris for an attempted plot to um, assassinate um, King Louis, the anonymous author of the pamphlet Political Observations Without Order in 1774, welcoming the association, um, said that the tortures of Damien were an insufficient punishment for a violator of the then recently promulgated association because Congress derived its power, wisdom and justice from the white American people and that therefore a free man in honour and obeying the Congress honours and obeys himself. The man who refuses to do both is a slave. You can see here the, the way in which uh, sort of prior knowledge of slavery begins to intrude on ideological arguments. The author continued, he knows nothing of the dignity of his nature. He cannot govern himself. Expose him for sale at a public auction. Send him to plant sugar with his fellow slaves in America. Let not the air of America be contaminated with his breath. My research takes this kind of I hesitate to say rhetoric, but let's call it rhetoric for the moment, seriously, and ask why is it that statements of this kind are so prominent in the historical record in the immediate aftermath of the passing of the association of non-importation, non non-exportation and non-intercourse by Continental Congress in October 1774. In brief, I'm saying that I don't think this is coincidental and that some part of it can be explained by the prior knowledge of slavery, the institution of slavery, among white Americans as a whole at that time. So basically, what they're saying is if you, if you reject the idea of American freedom, liberty, then you're making yourself a slave and akin to 
the actual enslaved Africans that they that they saw that they owned, and therefore you were liable to be treated as a slave. Yes, there's a famous um, uh, the title of a famous book um, called A Cousin's War. This is um, you know Britain and America are cousins and they fall to war. What we're talking about here is um, an official document, i.e., the association, which through extrajudicial means, defines some white cousins, could be family members, um, as insufficiently American. And as we've seen in uh, some of the citations that we've been talking about, this uh, was taken by red-hot patriots to justify the ultimate measures. Uh, ultimate measures. So, for example, Alexander Hamilton, who would go on to be the first Secretary of the U.S. Treasury and was later killed in a duel with Aaron Burr, wrote in 1774 in a pamphlet his first entree into the political stage, a pamphlet called A Full Vindication of the Measures of Congress. This was his argument. Since then, the persons who will be distressed by the methods we are using for our own protection have by their neutrality first committed a breach of obligation it is plain that obligation upon us is annulled and we are blameless in what we are about to do what we see in the associational moment of 1774 is the beginning of a a chain of logic which will be familiar from more ghastly totalitarian regimes of the 20th century namely that the ends justify the means You're either with us or against us. Even if you are white, even if you are related to us, you are either a patriot or not. And in 1774 and going down through the years, um, certainly during going down through into the uh, Revolutionary War, um, extreme measures were sanctioned against what Americans at that time called Tories, that is to say people who were insufficiently ardent in their support of American independence or outrightly hostile. So how far did this, this strong language extend into actual violent action then? What, what was the, what was well, the link? Well, my research, uh, the, uh, many listeners to this will say, well, the obvious objection is that people weren't executed. Um, to which I would say, but many people self-exiled themselves. If we look at the um, wording of individual former colonies, now independent states, legislation governing the property of Tories, essentially confiscation acts, property belonging to, to Tories after independence was confiscated, in many cases. Um, All citizens of the newly independent states, most states had a loyalty oath that you had to swear allegiance to the constitution of the former colony, now an independent state, in order to become a full citizen of the state, which implied that you, if you did not, you couldn't be an office holder. These are factors which account for the high rate of of self-exile. But more importantly, or more subtly, I think, 
One of the big differences between being an African-American slave and being a white Tory is that in theory, the white Tory, by making a full apology or by renouncing his political views, could become reintegrated into the uh, political community in a way that an African-American slave never could. When we look at rituals of humiliation and shaming, when we see people hauled up before these revolutionary uh, committees of safety and being confronted with the idea that, you know, you have said remarks derogatory to Continental Congress or you have imported goods when you shouldn't have, you know, will you make a kind of public retraction and apology? If we look at that kind of documentary evidence, <clears throat> it becomes clear that the hapless victim of such proceedings could never really reintegrate themselves into society. They had been, in effect, um, gone through a process of civil excommunication. They were placed into a permanent situation of doubt. And it's my working thought, my hypothesis, that this is not coincidentally um, reminiscent of the position in which African-American slaves existed. And it is not entirely coincidental that when you're looking for an enemy within, the kind of model of an enemy within that you have in mind is that of an African-American slave. And that white American Tories were, by a process of volition and omission, being thrust into a category akin to the category occupied by African Americans. So, does, would, would there have been a climate of fear then of people who, if, if there was no recourse once you'd been tarred with the idea of being a Tory, there was no, you know, no way back? Then surely that creates a climate of fear that particularly if it's, it's beyond the judicial process, that, you know, just by being accused of it, that's kind of the end of it. There must have been a climate of fear then. There was. Um, and the fear rises and falls, certainly after 1775, according to the fortunes of war and as, as, um, as the tide of, of, of the Revolutionary War moves back and forth. So some areas become more fearful than others. Um, more generally, though, yes, it was very... It seems to me from the historical record that it would be very difficult to be accused of being a Tory. To go and do what the local committee says, i.e. recant your views, often on bended knees and in public ceremonies, which in turn bear a lot of resemblance to uh, witchcraft rituals. Or the rituals of by which an accused witch could, in theory, you know, get rid of the imputation of being a witch. Um, no, I, it seems to me that you would be. It's almost impossible looking at the um, the data to conceptualize a way in which someone who had been accused in this way could, by going through, uh, by cooperating with the whole process, somehow be reintegrated into. The community. Let me give you an example. An elderly couple in Hartford, Connecticut, they, uh, their daughter died after the association had been promulgated. And they happened to have in their house um, some tea 
which they'd purchased before the association had been promulgated. And so, to get over their grief, they brewed a pot of tea, whereupon some, quote-unquote, helpful neighbours reported their action to the local committee of observation, who deemed them to be enemies of American liberty. And the couple were forced to go before uh, the committee and apologise humbly for their action and their great uh, effrontery in brewing this pot of tea. And their matters rested. Now, we don't know what happened next, but a priori one would assume that it'd be quite difficult to continue living in a small village, hamlet, community, knowing that one of your neighbours had dobbed you in to a committee made up of people no better than they ought to be, who had accused you of being an enemy of American liberty just because you'd brewed some tea that you, know, you happened to have beforehand. This kind of schism would have affected many different American communities. Or a different example. A Scottish school teacher in Westmoreland County, Virginia, called David Wardrobe, wrote a letter in June 1774 to some kinsmen back in Scotland, saying, oh, uh, things are very bad here. I've just seen George III hung in effigy. Oh, where will it all go? Um, there's rumours that a Continental Congress is being called. This letter was published without him knowing in a Glasgow newspaper. And the, and the newspaper in turn, uh, the Glasgow, a copy of the Glasgow newspaper, made its way back to Virginia after the association had been promulgated. The local committee of, of inspection and observation in Westmoreland County found that David Wardrobe had been disrespectful to Congress, even though Congress hadn't been convened when he wrote the letter. They ordered him to attend Westmoreland Courthouse and make a public statement of apology. He said no, whereupon he was a school teacher. The local committee instructed all the inhabitants of Westmoreland County to withdraw their children from his school, which they then went on to close anyway. Mm. So David Wardrobe, indeed, on his bended knee outside the Westmoreland Courthouse, made a statement saying that he was humbly sorry for his actions and that he would never not repeat them in the future. Now, it's hard to see any way back from that, that once a suspect, always a suspect, and that this, in some ways, obviates the obvious objection to what I'm saying, which is, well, at least he wasn't guillotined. Violence implied is as bad, I would say, as violence inflicted. To say, well, no one was really roughed up, or, you know, perhaps he should get over his feelings, is to ignore, in this case and in others, hundreds of others, the angst involved in living in a small town, small village, American community, knowing that many of your neighbours often for shady reasons, have imputed unto you the, um, the, the um, taint 
of being insufficiently American. It, it's like original sin in some ways. And that this is a very dark side um, to the otherwise bright, shining moment by which the 13 clocks all struck as one. The, my, my, the, the subject area of my study is the period from uh, following the Boston Tea Party up through the Declaration of Independence and then into the newly independent America, where we traditionally think of this moment as being um, a sort of bright, shining, patriotic uh, sort of group of oppressed Americans sloughing off the tyranny of a British empire. In contrast, this... this um, in contrast to the grubby realities of trying to hammer out a U.S. constitution in 1787 um, and 88, where, of course, historians will be keen to recognize that the, the existence of slavery had a major role in the way in which the constitution was written and the, the three-fifths compromise and so on and so forth, the fugitive slave law, the, the, the ban on any discussion of banning slave imports until 1806, all that kind of thing. <coughs> in contrast, historians of America like to imagine the period 1774 down to, let's say, 1783 as being a kind of unalloyed patriotic moment in which um, a sort of American people rose up as one. And in many ways, there are still elements of truth in that. But one of the things that makes the American Revolution revolutionary is the logic, as we see in the association and the treatment of Tories, that the ends justify the means. And that the treatment of Tories under the uh, local governmental structures set up by the association was even if they were not guillotined, illiberal and fundamentalist. And if we ask ourselves, where did that illiberalism, that fundamentalism come from? I think it is worth considering that it comes from a prior understanding of the institution of slavery among all Americans, even those Americans who did not own slaves. To, I've been trying to avoid um, this almost punning thing, but what makes Americans think in black and white terms is the fact that they have blacks and whites and that most of the blacks are enslaved. I'm not arguing that there's a, a sort of whole cloth borrowing from uh, slave codes into the definition of Tories, but many of the people who served on local committees of inspection, of enforcement of public safety, especially in the South, of course, would also have served on slave patrols. This is white people policing, uh, policing and runaway slaves, making sure that the slaves stayed on their plantation or that they had proper paperwork to leave, this sort of thing. There's a, an area here of crossover. To wrap up then, um, just you, you've sort of outlined how um, it implies, uh, well, it, 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 it 
puts a slightly negative shadow on the actions of the of the early uh, revolutionary. Is that that's that's a difficult statement to make, I suppose, isn't it? It's still you know the history here is is still live. People still interested. In that. So is that is that something that 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 makes you makes you concerned about sort of looking at that angle and uh, and talking about this time with a with a negative context? Yes, um, we uh, listeners to this may not know that we're actually talking about uh, we're, we're having this discussion on the day that Christopher Hitch- Hitchens died, and I like Hitchens, would like to consider myself to be an enemy of totalitarianism, no matter where it manifests itself. And I would like to say that where totalitarian tendencies um, raise their head, I would like to bear witness against them. Um, I've been particularly struck, um, if I can just sort of digress a bit, um, by Hitchinson's, Christopher Hitchens' uh, discussion of George Orwell and Orwell's tussle with W.H. Auden. You listeners will remember that Auden, in the poem Spain 1937, had spoken of the necessary murder. And Orwell had said, look, um, I've fought in Spain, I've seen the bloated bodies in the streets of Zaragoza, there is no such thing as a necessary murder. To talk of necessary murder is to lend aid and comfort to totalitarian forces. Auden went away and, for the rest of his life, regretted ever having come up with the phrase necessary murder. I think that in the case of the American Revolution, for a long time now, um, and for a variety of reasons, historians of uh, the period uh, 74 through the Revolutionary War down to 1783 and the pa- Treaty of Paris have, for a variety of reasons, sort of said, well, look, you know, uh, they've dealt in metaphors of omelettes and eggs. You know, it is better that America was independent than not independent. You know, what do you expect? Um, how can you achieve independence without a a bit of bloodshed and a bit of roughing up. And all of that is true, and to many, uh, to a large degree, I agree with it. As Jefferson said, was ever there such a prize won with so little blood? All of that's true. But nonetheless, the process by which Americans um, thought about what they would do with their white cousins who were insufficiently, incompletely, or outrightly opposed to independence, is quite a dark story. And it, I believe, reflects, um, that story reflects uh, a prior knowledge of slavery that if we were talking about the constitutional settlement would be regarded as a, a commonplace. Of course, Come on, Dr. Thompson, you know, when they're coming up with a federal constitution, they're going to take into account slavery. Fine. But also, I am saying, I think we might see some um, uh, causal influence from a prior knowledge of slavery in what is has been traditionally seen as a kind of bright, shining moment where patriots stood up without prior malice to anyone and that everyone was brave.
We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Dr. Peter Thompson there from Oxford University. And that's it for this week's episode. I'm not entirely sure what we'll be talking about next week, but rest assured it'll certainly be historical and hopefully very interesting. So do tune in. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Thank you, as ever, for listening. between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.